I have a new toy today. They, Phil told me that uh, if I click on the button, the forward button, then it'll go forward one slide. But I have the power to uh, derail the entire service because if I click the back button too many times, it'll take the whole slideshow back to the beginning. So if all of a sudden you see me freak out, that's probably why. They, they probably should not give me this kind of power. But uh, so today we hear in the gospel something that's, uh, I think, really interesting and challenging. The, the first piece is the last part, the, the love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. You know, if someone slaps you on, on one cheek, turn the other so they can slap the other one. If someone takes your coat, give them your cloak as well. And if someone takes something from you, don't ask for it back. How many of us really work hard to do all of these things in our lives? Okay, so maybe not a lot of us. How many of us find it almost impossible to, to love the people we consider to be our enemies? I, I do. In fact, and this is, this is weird, at, at least I consider it weird. I have, a, I have a list of the people in my life, and this isn't like a revenge list, just so you know. But, but, I, but I have a list of the people in my life that I, that I go to during my prayer times who I consider to be my enemies. And let me tell you who I consider to be enemies. Enemies are people who I'm angry at, whether for a good reason or for no reason, right? Enemies are people who I feel like are somehow against me, whether they're actually against me or I'm just imagining it in my anxiety and my subconscious because my imagination is active. You know, enemies are the people who I, I have trouble loving for whatever reason. And, and I, I categorize them there not because I think I need a list of people I don't like, but because when I put them in this category, this text... Uh, several years ago, helped me to resolve a long-standing grudge that I was holding against somebody. And I read it, and I heard, love your enemies and pray for people who persecute you. And I thought about the relationship that I had with this person. First, it was really only in my head because they'd moved away a long time ago. But this grudge, this grudge was my relationship. It was my only connection. And think about the verbs we use for the word grudge. You nurse a grudge, you hold a grudge, you carry a grudge. They're intimate. They're, they're words of care and concern. They're, they're words that indicate energy and time and commitment and relationship. So if I can put somebody in a category that I know what to do with it, all of a sudden I'm able to, to follow the example of Elsa and let it go. And so we, we see Balloon Girl here, which I think is actually Banksy, who's a, I, it depends on who you are. Some people call him a graffiti person. Other people call him an artist. I think he's an artist. But you know, this, this picture of Balloon Girl is interesting because if you look at the corner of the heart, it's a little bit tattered. We, uh, we think about the saints today. And the saints on the one hand are, are that great cloud of witnesses of people who have died for the faith. They're people like Stephen. They're, they're people, and, and you know, all the people that, if you look at the prayer list in, in the ELW, you'll see names in parentheses and certain things that most congregations never read. You know, all of those people are saints of the church, 
people whose faith was held during times of persecution, times when it was not only, you know, their reputation on the line, but when it was really their, their life on the line. But we also think of people like Paul. Because when we hear the word saint, you know, the, the first thing that I think of when I just kind of natively hear the word saint is like good church person. I grew up in construction. I grew up on job sites. I grew up in, in a place where we punctuate sentences with four-letter words because that's just kind of who we are, right? And what happens when, when that's kind of your dynamic and you're around good church people? They're scandalized, right? And so it's ironic maybe that as a pastor, I always feel uncomfortable around the good church people but I always have because it's, always, it's part of who I am that I've always felt like in whatever group I was in, I might be inside, but I feel like I'm always kind of on the edge of acceptable. And, uh, you know, there's, there's that first therapy issue that we deal with, right? And what we learn from people like Paul, though, who's important, and I have a, I have a really complicated relationship with Paul because there are times when I read the things that I that he says, and I remember his history as someone who was so zealous for the faith, who was so concerned that not only he gets it right, but that everyone around him follows the, the laws of his faith like he did, and he understood them, that he would persecute the people who didn't. You know, Paul's beginnings are as a persecutor of the church, the people who believe in Jesus. And he has a moment where literally he's struck blind. Where, where literally his entire life is just turned upside down and he begins to understand something new about what it means to believe in Jesus, that when we are an enemy of Jesus, Jesus loves us. How much does love transform our hearts? How much does that moment of grace and acceptance transform our lives? How much does it change our perspective of somebody when we're just getting ready to lay into them, whether they deserve it or we just want to? And they show us an unexpected grace that causes us to, to pause. Sometimes that makes me really angry because then I'm mad at myself for being mean. And there's nothing I like less than being mad at myself for something that's justifiable to be mad at myself about. But that grace and that mercy and that new space, you know, that transformation that Paul experienced that moved him from being someone who persecuted the church because of Jesus to somebody who found his entire world transformed by the love of Jesus. That's what it is to be a saint. It's not someone who's perfect. It's, it's not someone who's a good church person, even though good church people can be saints too, I promise. You know, it's, it's not what kind of language we use or the rest of it, that sainthood is what God is doing in us that drives us in to reconsider the way we interact with the world around us because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it does in our lives. And so when we talk about saints in church, there's a line in the funeral service, you know, that, that talks about a lamb of your own flock, a sinner of your own redeeming, and, and refers to the person who's died as a saint. And on the one hand, it's beautiful. On the other hand, doesn't it always feel like it's an awful lot to live up to? And 
when we're in the midst of, of grieving for people who we've lost, because that's the other context of All Saints Days, All Saints Day and, and most congregations, is somehow we find a way to commemorate those people who we love and have lost. You know, we have members of the congregation. We have people in our families. We'll, we'll name people by name during our prayers today. And part of what it means to, to feel that loss so keenly is that it does feel like we're letting a piece of our heart go. And in a lot of ways, even though we have that final hope for the resurrection and that reunion, you know, in, in the South, we, there's, that, uh, there's the Southern gospel tradition. We have hymns like I'll Fly Away where we dream of all being in a cloud together, you know, somehow reun- reunited with the ones we love. But uh, in the meantime, I think a lot of times we feel a lot more like this. We feel like, you know, we're, we're so alone in our grief. We're so alone in our feelings because we live in a culture that is so out of touch with the idea of death, the idea of grief, the, the reality of what it does in our lives that in the same way with our children, you know, we have these feelings in our heart that are almost too big for any words to describe and we hold them and we carry them and we nurse them and we care for them and we hide them away denying the gift that we're given in the church, that we're given in our families of community, that tell us a truth that we need so much to hear, that our aloneness is a myth. Other people in our lives are carrying this too. But when we're stuck in our feelings, doesn't it sometimes feel like we're standing right there, but we're transparent and people just can't see us? because we're carrying something that we maybe feel a little ashamed to carry because maybe it's been a little too long or, or maybe I'm feeling a little too bad or maybe I've cried a little bit too much this week or maybe, you know, all the things that we say to ourselves, you know, buck up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, even though I think probably most of us have never owned a bootstrap in our lives, you know. And, you know, we just, we put ourselves in a position that's not only untenable, but it's absolutely imaginary that we are alone in our grief. We, uh, we just have this need to share with the people around us the things that we're feeling. There's a, you know, when we're, when we're right in the middle of it, there's, a, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, the other, the other side of the fence only looks greener because you don't know where the cows have been. And, and when we're stuck in, in our feelings and we're stuck in that moment of grief and despair and hurt or those moments of anger because we're holding a grudge or those moments of shame because we're upset with something we've done or all those feelings that cause us to isolate ourselves from the world around us and draw into ourselves and away from everybody else, you know, we are so close to the thing that we, we don't know how to identify the real shape of it, the real scope of it. You know, it, it's, uh, I saw the image of somebody standing right up close to an elephant and you can't tell what it is. All you can see is the gray and the wrinkle. But uh, if we take a moment and we deal with things, and all of a sudden something comes into greater focus and we begin to see the shape of it. You might notice that that's a tattoo. It's a fresh tattoo. It's a, it's a heart with a fingerprint in it. And the, the fingerprint is the fingerprint of a, 
of a young boy who died this summer from a heart problem. And it's a tattoo that both his mother and father got. And one of the things that I think is so striking about this image is if, if you look at it, not only do you see the lines of the fingerprints, but if, if you see it in kind of its natural context, you'll see that all around the edge is red. Each individual line is raised because it's a fresh wound. The wound is, you know, the woundedness piece of it, eventually the redness will go away and the, the inflammation that causes it to be raised from the skin is gonna go away. But it leaves an indelible mark on your heart. It leaves something in, in our lives that we can't take away. And one of the things that we remember about Christ on all saints is that the risen Christ is not a Christ who was raised whole and healed and, and just awesomely, amazingly new and, and shiny and bright and, you know, just out of his package. The risen Christ is someone who continued to bear wounds. Remember the, the resurrection scene when the, when the disciples were locked away in the room in John for fear? And Jesus said, come and put your fingers in my hands and come and put your hand in my side. You know, that woundedness remains. So what do we do with it when those names that are written on our hearts, you know, just don't seem to want to go away? And when we, we just don't know how to get rid of it and when we are so, so stuck and broken that, uh, you know, there's, just, there's not words for it anymore. I was, I was looking at art this week and I, I found this painting and uh, it's Jesus weeping with Mary and it, it's haunting. I've, I've looked at this painting since I found it on Tuesday like five times a day. Because, uh, you know, I, I realized as I was preparing this week, and I'm about to break one of my own rules. I always tell, you know, when, when I'm talking to new preachers, I always say, preach from your scars, not from your wounds. Because your scars are the things that you've dealt with. The scars are the things that you own. The scars are the things that you can talk about without feeling a whole lot of emotion, even though it's a powerful story. You know, that's a good illustration, right? It's a story that gets the point across but doesn't trip you up. Well, one of the things that I haven't been able to shake this week is just the fact that I am grieving so hard having left my home in South Carolina. It has been so bad. And I, I just don't, I'm happy where I am and I just don't have any words for it, right? And in the midst of it, and it seems like a silly thing because we have a house, we have jobs, we have our daughter, we have, you know, everyone's healthy and whole and happy and like life is good, but life is hard, right? What we remember on All Saints is that promise of baptism that we talked about with our kids this, this morning during the children's time. You know, the church is the place where people laugh with you and you don't cry alone. And the promise of God is that life in God's kingdom is the place where God laughs with you and Jesus weeps. Those tears are important. This week as we... Uh, as we continue to carry the things that we carry, whether they're grudges or whether they're our woundedness or whether it's our grief or you know, whether it's the conversations that bug us because people are just sometimes so dumb we can't stand it, you know, all the things that we carry. I'd, I hope you might take a couple minutes and, and consider this picture or something else that's powerful for you. 
and, and take some time to remember that those feelings might be so big you can't put words to them, but you're not the only ones who feel them. And it is a gift to the people in your family to talk to people about those feelings. That not only are you not alone in your grief because you have your family, but in those places where we mourn, God mourns with us. And then through the pain, because the pain's gonna come out one way or another. If we bottle it up, it's gonna come out in ways that we don't choose. If we walk through it, then those wounds can become scars. And all of a sudden, our loved one's stories are no longer wrapped up just in the tale of their death, but they can become people again because we can remember the joyous times and the wonderful things they brought. And we can celebrate the, the reason that we mourn the loss of this person in a way that we can't when we ignore it. Remember that God is with you in the midst of this. Remember that the only way through pain is through the pain. And that while the promise is that joy comes in the morning, sometimes the path is long and challenging. And know that you walk that path with the rest of us. And we're here and want to walk it with you. Amen.